You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, it is a delight to be with you this morning. I grew up in Berkeley, went to, uh, well, actually, we grew up in Walnut Creek or near Walnut Creek, but went to church in Berkeley, First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. So there probably wasn't a Sunday or a month of Sundays that went by in which we weren't thinking about what was happening here in Seattle at University Press. It is a delight to be here and an honor to be able to uh, share with you this morning. As I was looking at Acts 17, this passage we're going to look into today, I was reminded of a story that happened some time ago. I was with the leader of the group that was bringing the four spiritual laws into the Orient. Some of you are familiar with that. Campus Crusade for Christ has done this wonderful uh, thing in which you have four different laws, basically a conversation starter, a way to get someone to begin to converse about who Jesus is in hopes that they would begin a relationship with him. Law one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Some of you are smiling. I can tell that you have heard that before. Maybe you have addressed someone with that first law. Man is sinful and separated from God. Law three, Jesus Christ is the only provision for sin. And the fourth, we must individually accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Well, I was sharing with them, how did that go when they were in Japan? Here, this country of which Christianity is not the foremost faith for that nation. He said it was really good until the first day. (laughs) He said all our people went out, they were charged up, ready to share, excited. And then they came back with various stories of questions. Where do we go from here? Law one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. To which many of the Japanese students answered, which God? Which one are you talking about? In a world more salad bowl than melting pot, where or how do we handle the message of Jesus? How do we do that? What strategy do we employ to declare this message of a God who loves this planet and wants to reconcile it, wants to renew it, wants to restore it? How do you do that? Well, over the last several weeks, as I was looking at what you've been hearing from this pulpit, I've noticed that you've grown in your understanding of the Apostle Paul, this Middle Eastern Jesus promoter who bumped from one city to another with this message of what had happened to him. And in Acts 17, we find him somewhat dinged from his latest coastal encounter. In fact, so much so that there's been a contract on his life. Uh, Some of his favorite friends have spirited him now to the city called Athens, some 200 miles south. Athens. By this time, it would have been well past prime. This was uh, a city, though, still basking in faded glory. Athens still commanded the respect of the great thinkers of the day. This was the pinnacle of the world's leading scholarship, literature, art, philosophy. In fact, to ease our understanding this morning, let's just consider Athens the UW of the ancient world. Shall we? Is that okay? In guest preaching parlance, that's called pandering to the pews, just if you want to know. Paul wasted little time. Scripture states that he was driven by an inner turmoil. He had, he had watched this unending smorgasbord of the great world philosophies, and not one of them pointed, at least as far as he could see, to anything that delivered on ultimate satisfaction. And so when he entered the city, being culturally, ethnically, and socially Jewish, he not surprisingly went to the synagogue. By the way, this was Paul's M.O. You've seen it before. 
Acts tells us that Paul got to the synagogue, punched his ticket there, and he did this in practically every city in which Paul went to. Uh, Salamis, Poseidon, Antioch, Iconium, Berea, Corinth, and Ephesus. Going to the synagogue was like taking a page out of the first century edition of Jewish evangelism for dummies. And this was the low-hanging fruit chapter. This is how you start. This is what you do. Start with where you are. Begin with a point of reference, your point of reference, some place that's safe, that you understand. Make sure that the cultural markers are familiar, make sense to you. That's where Paul started, the synagogue. And here's what it says in the passage. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. It's in the Agora, or the marketplace, that Paul runs into some tough talk. Now, unlike the other places in which Paul was being confronted by the religious extremists, this is a more highbrow city. And so you have a higher grade of descent. In this case, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, that's who he met up with. And these are the ones that held sway in the marketplace of ideas. These were the ones that people were talking about. The Epicureans, for your knowledge, was, were mild hedonists. These are the ones who operated under a personal pleasure principle. This was their ultimate goal. It's funny, we still have that same term that we use today. With no room for God, these materials were more interested in heightened experiences or emotion. The term Epicurean, by the way, uh, translates to a devotion to sensual pleasure. Anyone know anyone who might be an Epicurean today? They're probably not here. They saw the weather. and <laughs> It happens so often here. It's, uh... The Epicureans of Paul's day were more moderate, by the way. They, uh, they believed that life was more chance than purposeful and that happiness was the ultimate freedom. And they also felt that it was important for other people to join them. They were quite evangelistic. Stoics, on the other hand, were not so governed by emotions. They felt that a person of moral or intellectual perfection, an elite group, could actually free themselves from emotion, in a sense. Well, suffice to say, both philosophies put a lot of stock into not just thinking, but also doing. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. I love this term that they called Paul. They said, it says here in my passage, babbler, spermologos. Sperm means seed. Most of us remember seventh grade health ed, right? Logos means word. Seed picker. Seed picker. The images of a bird that goes around and just kind of picks up seed wherever. Uh, more likely, this is a person who scrounges other people's ideas. Maybe more to the point that worst of all human cuts. This is a poser. A poser. What's this poser trying to say? It's obvious his thinking created interest because they asked him to go on. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. And then a little aside, as Acts often gives, and we're so glad that they do. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. For a master of apologetics, this was about as influential as it gets. 
To Athenians, the Areopagus this was, was as much place as it was people. Literally, the hill of Ares, or the hill of God, of thunder and war. And during its glory years, this was the seat of government. Now its occupants were basically the unofficial minders of Athens. If you wanted to play ball in the philosophical big leagues, it's hard to imagine a more strategic place to pronounce. And this is what Paul said. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. Now I went to the UW of the Midwest, the University of Kansas. Rock chalk, Jayhawk. And on that uh, campus, about this time of the year, we would be visited by two people. One was a gentleman by the name of Holy Hubert, and one was his colleague named Sister Sarah. And they would come, and their way of doing an outreach was to basically point the finger and cast blame and, and declare sin wherever they found it. And let me tell you, they found it everywhere. It was the last time, in fact, I've ever heard publicly the word reprobate, sinner, prostitute, lowlife, whore, and hussy, all in one sentence toward the people we were talking to. It was a repent and believe kind of message. Now, now, in opposition to this approach, Scripture lays out another method. 1 Peter 3.15 Always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness. And with respect. It's almost as though Paul had invented those words. Paul comes in soft. Unless we miss this really basic point in the passage, Paul considers his audience, their thinkers, their philosophers, their learned men of the day. And they have a need. They want answers. And Paul answers them. This wasn't the Holy Hubert confrontational approach. Paul observed positive qualities to build on. In this case, their fascination with religious philosophy. This was the start. And so profound was their addiction to this that they even had a God just in case they missed a God. It's what I call covering your bases spiritually. Notice the contrast. One is called a poser. In fact, he's the one with the truth. The man of peace speaks on the mountain of the God of war and thunder. Paul's listeners render a snap judgment while Paul is out there studying his environment, being aware of the needs of the area and meeting them. Paul begins where they are, and he describes their God. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world, the cosmos, and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by hands. God isn't the trees. God isn't the sunset, the plants, or anything near where Stoic pantheism would like to take you. He doesn't reside in boxes we've constructed. He's not in the Sistine Chapel, nor Notre Dame, nor your cathedral, nor this worship hall. And here I probably have stopped my pew pandering. Unless, in fact, he's residing in the heart of the person who's asked him to reside there. And therefore, then, he lives wherever that person goes. 
Let's be clear. The natural order, yesterday and today's sunshine, are clear witness, are all creation pointing points to God. They're pointing to him. They're screaming it today. Various structures we've constructed, they draw attention to God. But he doesn't live there. He's above it. He's over it. He's in it when he's in us, in it. Solomon, when building his own temple in a moment of searing clarity, made this observation, 1 Kings 8.27. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less the temples that I have built. And now Paul speaks to the Epicurean mindset. From one man he made every nation of men, and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. We all have a common background. We are all sons and daughters of Adam. We're not chance beings. God is ultimately engaged. God is the God of order and purpose. Our universe has meaning. God is a creator of time, and he's the master of placement. Your life has meaning. God has a will for your life. I remember a little phrase we used to say at Willow Creek. In fact, we said it with so much repetition that it just became kind of drummed in our head. The numbers have faces and the faces have names. And the faces are very, very critical to the Father. And because they're critical to the Father, shouldn't they be critical to you and I as well? In this kinder, gentler approach, Paul quotes some of their own towering literary figures to again affirm what that he's heard them, that he understands them, the fact that the Athenians are closer to truth than they know. Verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. And then, frankly, I like the way the message actually translates verse 30 and 31. God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better. But that time is past. The unknown is now known. And he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. And he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. Unless we don't know who that is. Matthew wants to be really clear in his 25th chapter. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the goats from the sheep. Well, some observations this morning. Um, when I was fresh out of seminary, I went to work with an evangelist by the name of Leighton Ford. He's become a very dear friend. And in the midst of that training, he had just left the Billy Graham evangelistic uh, organization, and he was now on his own doing many similar things. And so my job was to go into cities before the crusade or the celebration would happen and to do some training. We would bring in large numbers of people, often filling worship halls, who were going to bring a non-churched or an unchristian, quote-unquote, unchristian person on their arm. And we would talk with them. We noticed something practically in every city that we visited. That there was an inverse re uh, relationship between the years you were a follower of Jesus 
and the number of secular friends you actually had. Namely, the longer you were in the faith, the less the number of avowedly secular acquaintances you were connected with. Do the diagnostic yourself. Think this one out. My guess is that your results will probably be the same. Bible studies, accountability groups, devotionals, retreats, conferences, church activities. These are great things. But if that's all you do, it begins to squeeze out the relationships you have with outside the holy huddle, outside the fellowship. In the early years at Willow Creek, when we were just starting kind of a larger small group paradigm, I was in, in charge of some of that, and, and one of the things that I was to do was to get a group and to birth it. We didn't actually use words like vivisect or divide the group. We used calm, loving words like birth, and, uh, which I'm told is not as loving as, as it sounds. <laughs> but regardless, here we were in the final night. We had a group that was now about 24 people. Some of you are in neighborhood community groups, and maybe you've got a group that large. And it's a little hard to listen to everyone in the hour and a half you're there. And so we had told them we are going to birth at some point. This was the night. No more meeting in two different rooms in the house. Now we'll be meeting in two houses. And you could tell it was not going well. People started talking in ways they hadn't talked before. I don't want to go. I don't want to leave. I think this is a stupid idea. You could smell mutiny. And then one of the guys in the group said, I've got a scrapbook. Just came to him. I'm so glad it did. I've got a scrapbook, and it's, it's full of photos all the way through of pictures of you and I, of times that we've shared together, of life change, moments in which we just experience life together. And my scrapbook is half full. And it just dawned on me. If I don't open myself up to someone outside of this fellowship, my scrapbook remains half full. And I really don't want that to happen. This news that God wants a relationship with his creation, that he has entered our time and space, that he's taken the price of our rebellion from this lifestyle that we have lived. And now offers us a chance for life in all of its fullness, John 10.10. 10. This isn't a private matter, and it's never been one. Did you notice Paul's progression? The ever-increasing societal circles by which Paul expressed his faith. In city after city, beginning with the circle of greatest familiarity, the synagogue, his home turf. What's that for you? Where do you feel familiar? What is your Jewish synagogue? What's your inner circle? Where do you socially, culturally, ethnically convene your little group? Could be your coworkers, your friends, your family, your classmates. You can't copy someone else. God has uniquely placed you in your place with your group. But Paul didn't stop here. Christ's invitation was to expand beyond the familiar confines of the warm cultural corner and to move into further and further circles apart from himself. You and I can almost hear that same phrase that Jesus used, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And why we're on the subject of taking Christ to the world, it's critical to remember that Christ doesn't, not only doesn't live in the places we've designed, he doesn't necessarily live in the religious subcultures that we've constructed either. 
Jesus is not synonymous with the Christian religion any more than he's contained in the religious rituals we've created. Christ is above all culture. All culture. He speaks into every culture. You can't just say this is just Jesus and only the way he works. And he sits in a box like this. He explodes the boxes. And we regularly get this confused to our detriment. I was speaking with a friend of mine named Carl who speaks with Muslim leaders around the world. And often when they begin to smell that he's talking a lot about Jesus, he says, I'll ask, what's your mission here to the Middle East? He says, I'm trying to convince Muslims to follow Jesus. What do you do when you go to the United States? I'm trying to convince Christians to follow Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This judge who's been raised from the dead. His message of love permeates every single culture in greater and greater circles to the ends of the earth. Paul moved beyond the synagogue, and as he did so, he created a reaction. There was a reaction going on inside and a reaction outside. Something didn't feel right. Something was amiss. Something frustrated him. And by the way, this happens whenever you spend time with the original, the essential, the real, the authentic, and then you encounter a counterfeit. This is tension, this spiritual reaction. This isn't a bad thing, by the way. This is a motivating force if you allow it. During my years at Willow Creek, we were honored to have with us the legendary Chicago Bears middle linebacker, Michael Singletary. And in one of the times we decided to interview him, uh, many of you know that he had a fearsome look on his face. It's because he doesn't see well and he didn't wear glasses when he played. And so he had that squint, you know, that tear you up, take you out, trash you squint. <laughs> well, as he shared that, someone asked a question. How did you find so many ball carriers then, if you couldn't see? He said, when I stood in the backfield, I just felt for tension. Because wherever there was tension, there was usually a ball carrier. And I leaned into it. Paul saw lost people. And lost people motivated him to move closer. As you and I move from the places of familiarity to the other regions of our world, where do you feel an inner frustration, perhaps pressure, what my charismatic friends call a check in the spirit? Something a bit off, something spiritually out of alignment. This isn't, by the way, something you cure with Tums. Uh, an antacid doesn't do anything for you here. This is a motivating, enervating kind of reaction. Christian writer Frederick Buechner seems to have gotten to the heart of this understanding by defining the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. What's yours? Where do your interactions with your extended circle quicken something inside you? Where do you feel a tension, a disparity as to the way the world is supposed to be and the world as you see it is? And a prompting begins to engage you. Well, I can imagine this morning, based on the size of uh, this congregation, that there are some of you who don't have a clue what I'm talking about. In fact, you're beginning to get tense because I'm talking about so much tension. Um, you, uh, you drive around in your cheery lifestyle enclave of the great Northwest. You've uh, appropriated saving grace. Your radio is stuck on Scott and Sam in the morning. Your bumper's fish sticker is firmly in place as you head for your umpteenth Believer's Small Group. And a quick self-diagnostic, 
just kind of registers to you that there is no tension. Life is good. To which I feel led this morning to add a sobering reflection, one I hope that you'll be able to hear lest you discover far too late that you are really missing out life in all of its fullness. To use an overused phrase, you are so heavenly minded that you may have become no earthly good. And if this is you, your condition is serious, but not irreparable. You've simply lost your ability to hear the frequency in which the Lord uses to mobilize his people, to mobilize their hands and feet as his hands and feet to a world so desperately in need of those hands and feet. It could be busyness. It could be spiritual dryness. It could be fear that you're not going to get it right. It could be disobedience. It could be a distorted view of your own holiness. Regardless, you've just lost the temporary ability to be sensitive to a world that God has created for you to interact with, making it very hard for you to respond. The founder of World Vision, Bob Pierce, wrote in his flyleaf of his Bible, break my heart with the things that break the heart of God. By the way, that's a really good prayer if you find yourself in this condition. That might be a good place to begin. In fact, let me give you a couple of other quick prescriptive words. Reinvest time and energy in renewing your deep gladness. Remember what you were saved from and who saved you. This is why I love hanging out with people who have just come to Christ because they have not forgotten. It's very real to them where they were headed, what Christ did, and where they're going now. Recognize that he's given you gifts and resources. Do you know what these are? Do you know that you've been made to re-gift those resources? To the world around you. He's given you social circles and networks and issues of interest. Have you studied them? Are you becoming an expert in them? You need to use those. Secondly, take a deep look at the world in which you live. Do a Australian walkabout of your neighborhood, of your university, of your city, of your nation of your world. Stay longer. Ask more probing questions. Become a student of a culture. Become a student of a person. In Paul's observations of the culture around him, he was moved deeply by an intuition that something was amiss. This activated an energy in him to connect, to lean in, to engage. Question, what do you do when that sense of misalignment arises in you? How do you respond when you're pressed up against a person or that observation that something in your neighborhood, something in your world isn't right? What do you do? In gentleness and respect, Paul met needs. And in this case, answering the philosopher's questions to bring the light of Christ's truth and clarity to their thinking. In other passages, he gives encouragement. In others, it's wisdom. In others, he just makes tense. Meeting needs. It's the universal language. It's why you and I find so much servant language around Jesus. But to really do this, you and I need to be students of the world in which you and I live. I talk to too many Christ followers, by the way, who say that they've missed this simple ingredient in the world. And they wonder why people just always have a negative reaction to them when they just have a verbal proclaimed word. Could it be you, you like Paul, or to be also looking in your world for how to meet a need? Words ready, meeting a need. Someone was probably wondering, when is he going to talk about world vision? 
Uh, <laughs> I'm going to do it now. About eight years ago, I was in a small community in Coma, Malawi. Uh, they had kids that were sitting on rocks, sitting under trees. That was school. They had a river that went through their community that was dry in the season I was there. But if you could drink from it, you got cholera. I remember sitting with the headman. I was told, don't mention the word world vision. You'll get their expectation of we don't even know if we're going to actually be in this community. So we were just having this conversation, me and the headman. I said, what do you want for this community? He said, I want a school. Now, I'm thinking you have cholera water and you want a school. So I asked him, why do you want a school if you've got people dying of cholera in the water? He said, because if they go to school, they'll fix the cholera problem and all the other problems in our community. That's why he was the head man. So guess what World Vision did? With over $2 billion in reserves, with over 60 years of experience in knowing what a community needs, guess what we did? We built a school. In fact, after we built the school, we built water catchment, we built wells, we built health and hygiene, we worked on food security. In fact, for that little community of 26,000, the neighboring community found out that there was such good news in terms of what was happening in churches, what was happening with the community members themselves, that they wanted some of this action. What did we do? We just listened. We listened for need. And then when our insides began to get rustled, as they often do, we begin to build strategy to meet those needs. Always ready with this word of grace that came with it. Can you identify that place where you feel safe in sharing your life? Is there a place right now coming into your head and your heart as I ask that question? The truth of Christ can reach that place, but it needs a conduit. It needs you. Only you. Do you recognize the wider circles of influence that you've uniquely been placed in? Only you can go there. I can't go there. The person next to you can't go there, but you can. Have you hung in long enough to recognize that need? Perhaps you've a, a, you have the sensation or this tension that rises up inside you. Something isn't quite right. Today, could you commit to lean into that? Personal contribution of your time and resources. Well, as I close this morning, it's pretty obvious that that day on the hill of God and thunder did not net Paul a very high showing, if in fact hand raising is a, any sign at all. We've already studied in this series that there's a, this was a step up from the mobs that usually attacked him, but still there were just two or three people. I found it always helpful to remember that the Jesus revolution begins with a Solitary figure spiked on a Roman gibbet. And three days later, he emerges from an empty tomb. And he says, I love you. And man, do I have a wonderful plan for you. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share this morning to unpack your scripture. Thank you for going first. For showing us how it's done. To really live. Father, help us as we take stock of our own lives, our own neighborhoods. And recognize afresh what you have done for us is so worthy of being shared. By meeting needs. 
with our words, with our lives, with our deeds, and with the spirit that runs through us. In your name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.